0: He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it, and he did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret. In other words, I'm, I'm telling you about Cyrus well in advance using my nation's chief spokesman to do so. Isaiah was the leading teacher of the time. He had the king's ear. He had the nation's ear. What he wrote was quickly um, copied and distributed and read the world, the nation over. Hezekiah was a great king. He ruled a lot of different places. And so this was not something that was done under a rock, it was not done in secret. This was something that was well known. And God's telling you, I did not do this in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Now he's going to challenge the people. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come. And be ashamed, all who were incensed against him, and the Lord, all the offspring of Israel, shall be justified and shall glory. To illustrate a little bit better what Isaiah is talking about, I brought an object lesson this morning. I brought this piece of wood. Okay, it's my wife won a print for a cool picture of a cow, um, and she wanted for Christmas to have a frame made. So I made a frame for the picture of the cow. I took a piece of maple and I glued, this is the piece of maple right here, and I glued a piece of mahogany to it and then cut it into four pieces, mitered the edges and put it together. You can see that, glued it up. This was my experimental piece. This was the practice, one of the practice pieces. Okay, A few things to note. This is the groove on the inside, the back side of the frame, where the artwork will sit. And that took a little practice to get where I wanted. I didn't get it the first try. And you can see, if you look closely, some saw marks that show that I didn't get it right the first time. Um, if you look right here, this edge up here, that was where the I put the router over the edge of it to create that profile. And I did a couple different ones, and I took them inside to Danielle and said, which profile do you like best and she chose this one of the couple that I did you may notice that there's a see this little groove right here right here I'm pointing at that's a little spot on the corners so imagine this is the corner and there's another piece coming here I cut out that little spot right there and put what's called a spline in there And it looks decorative, but it's actually functional because that means these are never gonna get pulled apart once that little tab is in there. Now, my first try didn't go so great. You see how that's too skinny up there? That's not gonna look good. So I just kept sliding it down and down and down and down until I got it there, which is where I wanted it to be. And every time I wanted to practice, instead of practicing on the frame, I pulled out this piece and practiced on this piece. And you can see how this piece had like four or five different pieces of practice on it, Okay, And if you look really closely, you can see that here's a miter. This was my first try, and the miter's not really tight. And there's a little gap there. I wasn't happy with it. And so I just cut it off here, and it became my practice piece, Okay, Now, you know what I did with this practice piece? I tossed it in the firewood pile when I was done with it, right? I mean, it's just a stupid piece. I have a question. Did the piece ever complain? (laughs) Did the piece ever talk back to me and say, you know, Greg, I really think that other profile would look better on this? Maybe my wife did, but not the piece. didn't talk back to me. It, it's got all these shapes in it and stuff at my will. I chose what to do with it, right? Now, and then I tossed it in the firewood pile, and one day, and that's where it's going back after church, by the way, and one day it will serve us in that it will help start a fire in the baker home. Okay? Now, Let me illustrate something further. Imagine I got to looking at this piece. Can you see it from here? There's nice little rings in the maple. See the little rings? Those look pretty, don't they? Let's pretend we all think they look pretty, okay? Say, man, this looks pretty awesome. I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put this little guy here. Just bear with me. Give me a minute, and this will all make sense in a second. I say, you know, I really like this piece. Kind of reminds me of an arrow. So now what I've done is I've turned it into my God. This is Kilroy, the god of the hunt. And I take my little piece and I oops, sorry, and I put it on my mantle. I'll put it right here. Maybe you see it better. And that then becomes my God. How many of you buy that? Anybody? Isn't that stupid? (laughs) This was a throwaway piece that I'd practiced on. And I controlled every aspect of how it turned out. And now for me to stamp an image on it and say that that's my God and this is my idol how silly is that does this thing talk to me you just told me that it didn't does this thing tell the future you told me that it didn't did this thing choose how it's made you told me that it didn't and what I did what I just did here is the folly that Isaiah is describing in Isaiah 44 and 45, and he's contrasting that with who God is. It's not as simple as God isn't carved, God isn't a face, God isn't a person. What he's saying is, look at this, and ponder it for a while, and then consider God, and what you will find is an infinite chasm between the two. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. This is silly and foolish and folly, and this is anything that's created. Now... Let's compare this, now that you've seen what Isaiah is describing as foolish, and let's compare that with who God is. Okay? We've got four themes from Isaiah 45 that we're gonna, that we're going to break down today. As we read through that chapter, what I, I'm going to see if you guys can come up with them. There's four main themes from this chapter. As we read through it carefully, what's one of the repeated themes that God mentions over and again in Isaiah 45? You heard it a bunch of times. What are some of the things that God mentions over and again? Yes, that's right. In fact, that's the most salient thing, isn't it? God is God exclusively. God acts independently, exclusively, and sovereignly. That's my first theme. Let's chase this through the, this chapter with me really quickly. God acts independently, exclusively, and sovereignly. Let's look at verses 1 through 7, and you're going to see a bunch of I statements. Okay. Now, our translation doesn't, for the sake of fluidity, doesn't totally bring it out, but I'm going to supply them. Okay? Count with me. Count with me in the first seven verses the number of I statements that God's make that God makes. Thus says the Lord to His anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to, subdu- to subdue nations before Him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before Him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you, and I level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze, and I cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, and I the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, there is no other, besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know, from the rising of the sun and from the... West, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light. I create darkness. I make well-being. I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. How many eyes were there? Anybody count? 23. There's a bunch of them, isn't there? And if you throw in the mice, it goes up more. God is saying... <laughs> Is God leaving room for anybody or anything else? Now, if a human were to do this, we would not want to be near that person because they would be an insufferable, braggadocious individual. But when it's God who's faultless, when it's God who's perfect, when it's God who is, in a sense, and God is never on the defensive, but let me just tread a little lightly into that area, God is jealous and he sees his people going after this and he's defending himself. I've done this. Not your dumb idols that don't talk to you. I have done this. And God is defending and staking his claim. God is acting exclusively. I want you to notice the direction of the conversation in these first seven verses. This is is God talking to Cyrus. God is talking to him the whole time. Now, if you were to ask Cyrus, in fact, one of the coolest archaeological finds of the modern world was something called the Cyrus Cylinder. If you were to be in London and you went to the British History Museum, you could see it. It's something that Cyrus had made. It's really cool. And he brags on the Cyrus cylinder about all the things that he has done, namely returning people, the people of Judah, to the land of Judah. Now, God is saying, you haven't known me, Cyrus, and you're not going to acknowledge me. But 150 years before you... You came into this world? I said you would do this. I led you by the hand. I grasped you. I took you. And even though Cyrus doesn't acknowledge that it was God who did it, he's saying, I'm the one who did it. It was God the whole time who was doing this. God is talking to him 150 years in advance. God is the one who's sovereignly in control of this man's life, exclusively in control of this man's life. I want us to notice the eight claims of exclusivity. Okay, this is important to God, and if it's important to God, it should be important to us. Look at verse 5, there's two of them. He says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Look at verse 6, there's another two. That the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Uh, Let's look at uh, verse 18, go down to verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it, and he did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. Um, This is God's way of saying, I'm the one who established it. I'm the one who made it. He's not allowing anybody else to reign in that. Look at verse 21. There's another two. He says, "Uh, who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. Let's look at verse 22. Turn to me, the turn to me, and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Verse 23, by myself I have sworn. Okay? So, here's all these claims of exclusivity, and I have a question for you. Is there any way that language could be more clear? I mean... How else could God have said, I'm I'm it. I'm the only one. I'm the only God. I'm the only God that's ever been created. There's not going to be any after me. There will be none before me. This is it. I'm it. How else could God have been more clear? I'm pressed to know how, <laughs> how else he could have said it. He's... He's repeating it over and over and over again. He repeats it, like we said here, eight times in this chapter alone to reinforce for us his exclusive position. Why do you think God does that? It, you know, if people can't have another God, what's, what's the thing they want to do next? What's the thing they want to do next? If they, they want to be God, there's a bunch of people who want to be God. Will that ever happen? Uh, no. <laughs> no. What's another thing that people will do besides saying, well, I'd like to be a God? And that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, by the way, Ralph. That was what the devil said to Eve to tempt her. He said, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, what's another thing that people will do? They'll make an idol, to represent God, yes, but I'm, I was thinking a little different direction. How about this? They'll, I, I think I'm doing the thing that my wife always tells me I do. I She says, you know, you answer questions that only you know the answer to, <laughs> and like if you were to ask the question a little different way, people would get the answer, and when I was a Teacher, I did I, I had to I had to give a lot of free points on tests because I realized that my question was worded badly when nine tenths of the class would answer it a certain way and I was like, Oh, bad question. Um, people will want to say if they can't have their God, they'll say, Okay, next best thing, there's my God and your God. There's all these gods of equal value. And I have my God, you have your God. Let's all just be happy together. Is God happy with that? (laughs) No. Or, Or how about this one? God attacks this one too. You have your God, I have my God. We just know God by different names. You call your God Allah, I call my God Yahweh, you call your God Buddha. We're all going to the same place. What does God say to that? He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I am Yahweh, I am the I am, that is my name, and I give my glory to nobody else. God's not okay with us saying, oh, you've got your God by a different name, you've got your God by a different name. God stakes exclusive claim to Godness. There are no others, there are no others by a different name, God acts independently and exclusively, and he doesn't do it in secret. He does it proclaiming what he's done. And every other attempt to sort of get out from under these claims of exclusivity is just that. It's a, it's a human invention that God expressly, repeatedly, and clearly condemns. Okay? Now, That is the one thing in our culture we're not allowed to be, is dogmatic on this point. And that is the one thing that God is on this point. And so we have to sort of stake our claim where God stakes his claim. All right, I've only covered one of our themes, and we've got five minutes left, (laughs) rats. All right, number two, God God acts exclusively for his purposes, Uh, Let's look at verses 3 and 4 and 6 and 23. God says, I will give you treasures out of darkness that you may know that it is I. Let's go down to verse 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, for the sake of my servant, Jacob, I call you by name. Let's go down to verse 6. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. Go to verse 23. By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. So God is is calling, God is saying, that I I not only act independently and exclusively and sovereignly, I act all of those ways for my own purposes. Now, That should make us stop right there and ask a question. If God is exclusive and independent, if God is God alone and he acts for the sake of his own purposes, what are his purposes? Are they for good or are they for not good? the character and nature of this God who acts exclusively for his own purposes means everything, doesn't it? How does, to what end does God act exclusively and independently? Well, that brings us to our third major point. God's purposes, inalterable, exclusive, unique purposes for his own glory, are for our salvation. God is on record that his exclusive, independent, sovereign purposes that he makes for himself is for the salvation of his people. God is committed to pursuing his ends and his ends are salvation. Let's look at verse 6. He's committed to universal salvation, salvation the world over, that people may know from the rising of the sun, which is the east, (laughs) and from the west, which is the other side, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I I want people the world over to know me. First, let's look at verse 22. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Verse 23. By myself I have sworn. And from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. God wants people the world over to come to him, and he's prepared to send his people off for a 70-year hiatus and come back under the auspices of a pagan ruler to set in motion events that would result in Jesus coming at the perfect time in world history for the dissemination of this message so that the ends of the earth would know that he's a saving God. God, who's the architect of history, created a web of decisions internationally just so his message would have perfect soil to run across the whole world in. God ordained all that. Okay? God's purposes are salvation and righteousness. They come down like rain, according to verse 8. In verses 15 and 17, God says his name is Savior. God wants to be known as a saving God. God wants to be known as a saving God. Now, very quickly, everybody look at verse 23. to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Does that does that <coughs> remind anybody of a verse that they probably memorized at some point in time or another? Anybody remember this verse? Probably not this verse. It's probably a different verse. Does anybody remember? It begins with the word that. That at the, I hear it. Somebody, whoever said that, say it nice and loud. Yes, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The Apostle Paul is quoting this verse because he wants us to know that Jesus is this person. Right? He's staking claim. Jesus is this person. And the Apostle Paul is drawing these concepts together in a way that's really remarkable. And then last, last, I'll say this quickly. God's purposes are for his exclusive glory. Verse 3, it is I, the Lord. Verse 21, was it not I? Verse 25, in the Lord people... Shall glory. Okay? God acts exclusively, independently, and sovereignly in history for his own purposes. It just so happens that those purposes are for his glory and for your salvation. He has saved you. And now, in about 10 minutes, He wants you to glorify him for that salvation. And God worked all these historical events to bring you to this moment to glorify him for his salvation. Remember, to make, if you leave Isaiah 45, on the level of international affairs, you've cut yourself short. Because God wants you to apply everything spoken here to you right now sitting in those green chairs. And you can fulfill the Lord's purposes by glorifying him for the salvation he brought you as he worked in history to orchestrate all these events that make sense everybody so let's fulfill the lord's purposes and magnify him as we praise him for his salvation let's pray father thank you we are we stand amazed that you do so much to work salvation for the world over you organize and orchestrate events simply so that we will give you exclusive glory Not unto us, Lord, not unto us, but unto your great name be praise. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.